0: Coming up on this week's show the game boy with a 100 year battery life
1: a 37 year old game easter egg is discovered and we get the story of spy versus spy with richard spitalny
0: The Retro Hour podcast is brought to you each week with our amazing mates at Bitmap Books. Check out their full range of retro gaming books, including the amazing The Art of Point and Click Adventure Games book, a celebration of one of the most loved genres in gaming. Featuring 500 pages, this hardback coffee table book is packed with the very best pixel art interviews and classic scenes from the games that define this genre. Check that out and lots more on their website at bitmapbooks.co.uk. Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 285, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. Me, Ravi Abbott. And me, Joe Fox. And a very warm welcome, literally, to the show that takes you behind the scenes of the world of retro video games with a healthy dose of nostalgia laid on for good luck as well. I must admit, though, recording this week's episode, I do miss the days when we did this podcast in a cool air-conditioned studio. It is so warm. Oh God, I've I've had to turn
1: the fan off as well because it was making so much noise. So I'm Same.
2: even more melting for the podcast. Um, I was going to say, yeah, I've not got my fan on either and I've got my windows closed because a couple of weeks ago, Dan was like, somebody farted on the podcast when we were recording. But it turned out it was a motorbike going by my window. It was a man just walking by. Yeah, it could have been.
0: (laughs) Well, I mean, we are right in the middle of a heatwave here in the UK. um, And the sacrifices we make for this show, fans off, windows closed. It's kind of a bit of a, you know, a game of Russian roulette. Who's going to be the first to pass out, I think, during this week's episode?
2: Oh, it'd definitely be me. I'm the fattest.
0: (laughs) And I must admit, guys, don't freak you out anything. I'm doing this week's show topless. Oh just wow! Now, but... There we go.
2: Well, you oh, know God, what? I'm we not, not... don't have um <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm not actually topless today, but uh, Dan did drop me off in it on the Patreon hangout the other night. He was like, "Oh, it's good to see Joe's got a top on."
0: Like, oh, <laughs> yeah, about the amount of people we get going. Why don't you make it a video podcast? This is why. This is why we don't <laughs> make this a video podcast. But actually, you now the lovely weather over the last few days that we've had, it has been brilliant for retro Um I Don't know if you guys have done any. I got my uh, my Commodore 128. My one two eight. I showed that off actually on um, on our hangout the other day that we did on Sunday night. the The keys on it were so yellow it resembles sweet corn. It's it's it's
1: weird because it's so hot that like I I'd worry that you'd actually melt it or you'd get
0: some warping or something. Like, how did you do it, Dan? Well, I did the uh, the method you taught me, just the be blonde. But I only did the keys because the keyboard was yellow, but the rest of the machine was okay. So just pop the keycaps off, put them out there. I didn't cover them up with anything. I just you know. Did a healthy kind of covering of um, of the bee blonde on there enough to keep them you know from drying out. Went out there every hour or so, just kind of topped them up and moved them around a little bit. So after about five hours, I mean, they look good as new now. Um, but you are actually right because I did see somebody on one of the retro computing Facebook pages who put his Commodore sixty four out there. And You know that method we were talking about where you don't put any um, hydrogen peroxide or anything on, you just put it out in the sun, and it's meant just, to gradually just done kind by of-
1: the natural UV.
0: Yes, yeah, sun brightening is some of the call it. He tried to do that, left it out there all day while he went out. He came home and the Commodore 64 melted all oh, the plastic. So, um, <laughs> and I know there are parts of the world that are a lot warmer uh, than the UK is right now. It, so if it you're planning on that, you right
1: of, um, my dad had to return this really late video back in the days and he left it on the car dashboard on a really
2: hot day. He came <laughs> back and the
1: whole video cassette was melted. Nice.
2: we've uh, in our conservatory a little bit off topic but we have all candles in lanterns from when we got married like four years ago in our conservatory around the windowsills so you've got to think it's the conservatory then it's in glass lanterns and they're, right. they're just puddles of wax they're,
1: they're, <laughs> they're gothic now they're yeah gothic. just
2: yeah just gothic lanterns now and they've literally been there for like four years just melted in the sun can't move them now <laughs> yeah it's part of the house
0: but yeah, I think tomorrow I'm going to get out there and uh, get the Dreamcast looking all uh, nice and original again, hopefully. But um, obviously, if you are doing any retro brighting, our advice is keep an eye on it because you know it can go horribly wrong. Now we've got lots to talk about in this week's show, uh, an incredible guest as well. Now this week we're going to be getting the story of a classic spy versus spy. Ah, oh, yes, this this was a, a an amazing game
1: actually, and. Uh... It was really popular on the C64, but it was on loads of systems. and
0: On everything, really, wasn't it, back in the day?
1: Yeah, and like Richard, he was really good with licensing. So we're also going to be talking about Boulder Dash, which was mm. an absolutely huge title, and that got ported to everything. It even had a Speccy port, Boulder yeah. Dash. And um, we're also going to talk a bit Star Trek, because well, <laughs> you know I love my Star Trek. So
0: <laughs> it's a really rounded interview, you know. Well, I guess this week is Richard Spitalny, yeah, and he's got he's got a history in um in movies, hasn't he? Because we start the interview talking about um Dolly Parton and Sylvester Stallone. Yeah, he was working on a film which had
1: Sylvester Stallone singing in it. I've, I've yeah. got to watch this film. Um, what film's that? <laughs> it's called <laughs> Rhinestone. He's like. Uh, Sylvester Stallone singing with Dolly
2: Parton. I don't um, know that one. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were going to say, like, what's the one, like, stop
0: or my mum will shoot or something
2: like that. You know? Suddenly <laughs> turns into that. a musical.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, but I mean, it's such an interesting story. And kind of it's a, it's kind of a journey on, you know, him coming from, like, the, the Hollywood background through to the early days of the video games industry and all the interesting characters that he met along the way. You've got to hear the story about this guy who was... a. Uh, a massive investor in Commodore, wasn't he? And he went to meet him um, and this guy was just literally throwing money at them on the condition that they actually signed the contract there and then. Yeah, they couldn't think it about it on leave the room. like a
1: typical Commodore hardcore kind of guy. Um, but, you know, his company, First Star Software, that he founded, it actually came from the Atari Program Exchange and it was named after winning the Atari Star and it was kind of, you know, heralded as a, a really interesting company and that, that funding helped them actually get onto this uh game production and you know he wasn't a programmer he wasn't a, a massive designer but he'd he'd produce these games like producing a movie and coming up with the yeah. ideas and you know
0: getting the licenses and uh it's a really interesting story actually and spy versus spy Obviously, I mean, like we said before, on every platform. I remember playing that on the uh, on the Commodore sixteen, which you know, not many kind of major games got ported to that platform. Um, and also, obviously, it was a big hit on the Apple two and the uh, the Commodore sixty four, which you know, it's really, really its home platform, the the Atari home computers and that was originally a comic strip in mad magazine wasn't it so that kind of background on it was really interesting but also the fact that it was quite a complicated game for the time i thought you know kind of how we made that a bit more accessible is quite an interesting story
1: yeah and and the new version as well of spy vs spy uh we talk about yeah. that so we cover
0: a lot in this interview uh stay tuned for that one yeah so ravi obviously has a a bit of Star Trek geeking out as well, because you're a massive Trekkie, Ravi. So uh, yeah, hang around for this one. Our special guest, Richard Spitalny, coming up on the Retro Hour podcast in around 20 minutes from now. Now let's dive straight into the news stories this week. Lots to get through. Um, What about this? Because remember back in the day when we had handheld consoles, you know, might have had a Game Boy. The Game Boy, I think, was probably... The best for battery life. I remember friends of mine that had the Atari Lynx and the Game Gear. You'd be lucky to get like an afternoon out of one of those. Whereas a Game Boy, you can maybe get a weekend out of it. But what about this? Nuclear-powered Game Boys that can apparently run for a century. Now... This is really
2: misleading. So the technical part I'm going to leave to Ravi because Ravi is our oh is our is He's our, our scientist our resident, <laughs> resident <laughs> scientist. I'm like Homer Simpson at the <laughs> nuclear reactor. Um, so this guy has made a um, alleged nuclear powered Game Boy, um, but it's not actually a Game Boy.
0: You mean it's clickbait titles? It's clickbait in our show, joke. It's in our title, it got me.
2: <laughs> it is cool though. This it, is cool. It, it is cool. Um, so this guy,
0: what's his name? Ch- Charnus. Ian Charnus. Yeah, Ian he's, he's a YouTuber I hadn't come across before. He's um, this video. He's only got about five thousand subs, but his channel's really good. Actually, there's a lot of good stuff on there. I'll check
2: it out after this. But yeah, he uh, he's got one of the. It's the Tetris, like one of these cheap Tetris machine like handhelds you know i had one i think i literally had the exact same one when i was a kid but one of these knockoff tetris handhelds which use a hell of a lot less power than a game boy did because they've got really dimly lit screens like you know the screens are a lot dimmer than a game boy i don't know how that's possible but you know they are um and the you know the, the processors and stuff like that in them take a lot less power to run and I remember the one I had as a child, it ran off four AA batteries, but I don't think we ever replaced them, like ever, over the years. Um, but it is nuclear-powered. That part is true. And whether it lasts 100 years is debatable because apparently you have to charge it for two months for it to work for an hour. <laughs> okay, interesting. Um, but the, I guess the the actual you know nuclear part of it lasts a hundred years but i'm going to leave that part for our resident scientist ravi to try
1: and well, explain well, um,
0: <laughs> give us a lesson in nuclear physics ravi so, so
1: basically it's not the radium which they used to use in world war 2 um mm-hmm. and they used to like paint it on the dials you know yeah, yeah. when you were flying and it was really bad <laughs> and, you know it would give you cancer and yeah. uh, all of that kind of stuff that he hasn't got that going he's got um something called is it titrium titrium yeah that's it yeah. but 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 it's a tritium tritium I think, tritium yes. and it and it kind of works with phosphorus as well and phosphorus is like that light producing thing mm. so th- this works with phosphorus and then there's a small array of solar cells so actually it's kind of like the nuclear is powering the solar cells so it's yeah, kind and of it, like solar li- paneled from the light that's produced from, from yeah this it produces the light yeah so it's, it's, not... it's 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 interesting, a, a different way of kind of doing stuff. But uh, it's not like he's he's kind of hooked up or he's built a, a nuclear <laughs> reactor. I yeah, I was going to say he's not, <laughs> not quite as nuclear reactor as all the uh, the articles
2: are trying to make out. No, is I it? do
1: remember um, there was David Han Han mm. who um, was a kid who was known as a radioactive boy scout or the nuclear boy scout, and um, years ago um, he, he he basically created a nuclear reactor in his garden
3: Um,
1: and yeah he got shut down by the authorities and he was dismantling smoke detectors uh radium from clocks and stuff oh wow i think he ended up actually getting investigated by the fbi and stuff because uh
0: you can't really do that kind of thing (laughs) I bet his explanation was I was just trying to power my Game Boy. I didn't have any batteries. <laughs> <laughs> that was it. Yeah. So uh, very cool. You know, definitely um, a novel way to power a handle. I don't think I put that thing on my lap though. If I'm honest, but if you want to check yeah, out, yeah, no. But um, I like how he's got like
1: <laughs> you know radioactive hydrogen put on the back, and he's put the like nuclear signs, and he's obviously
0: made it look
1: really nuclear and
0: scary. It's a really fun video as well as production values and that are great. You know, a lot of kind of comedy in his videos. So I'll uh, link up his channel and the article in our show notes at theretrohour.com. Now, if we're talking about, you know, really old school retro games, maybe going back to the early 80s, we all like to think that games that we've played thousands of times over the years, we kind of know them a bit like the back of our hands and there can't be many secrets left to discover. But actually, it turns out a um, an Easter egg that is kind of well-known, but this has been all over over the last couple of weeks, from a game by Jordan Mechner. Now, obviously, he was more well-known for Prince of Persia and we've had him on the show before and uh, he was talking to us about an earlier game, Karatika, now, this was kind of a um, side-scrolling karate game, and it turns out a secret's been discovered in here.
1: Yeah, it was, it, it was kind of rotoscoped as well, wasn't it? So it, it had that really, really nice
0: uh, graphics that he was kind of legendary for. And when we had him on the show, it was talking about the fact that, yeah, that rotoscoping, it was the first time he did it, uh, and he actually um, rotoscoped his brother, didn't he? Pictures of his brother doing karate. Yeah. Um, and he's got like a really good book. He sent me a copy of it actually when we interviewed him. Um, kind of like The Art of Prince of Persia, but there's a lot of kind of karateka stuff in there as well. Um, and it was, you know, a, a big hit on the the Apple II, I believe it came out on originally. But then obviously later on, it was released on the NES and the Game Boy as well. But it turns out that original Apple II version had a little Easter egg in there that was quite funny.
1: It's, it's quite mad. So the five and a half, uh, five and a quarter inch floppy um you'd basically turn it upside down and load it and the and the game would load upside down and you, you'd think like that that's crazy that's a deliberate trick and it was he kind of put the code in there as an easter egg and um in this article um on the verge he they're talking about it and you know a lot of people probably know about this already but uh mm. it, it surprised me when it came up and uh Mechner says in it that uh, he didn't think uh, Broderbund would actually sign off on it because it required a change to the assembly line. So they had to change something in the assembly line just to make this work. But uh, they did it and uh, actually released it. And and he says it was because the president of the company had a sense of humor. Uh, uh, So he's really grateful for that. But that's mad, isn't it? Just. Turn the floppy disk upside down and the game's upside down. It's, it's really cool. And uh, there's a video of it on
0: YouTube flipping the disk. Yeah, This game, I, I've played it briefly. Um, not, you know, to any extent that I, I discover things like that. But I'm reading the comments here on the Verge article. And apparently there was another joke that kind of punishes you for how you, um, how you finish the game. So... At the end of it, apparently you approach an enemy there and you stop and you have to get ready. Um, And then when you get to the princess, apparently if you don't run into the princess's arms, if you just kind of casually walk up, she'll actually hit you and kill you out of spite. (laughs) <laughs>
2: like all real
0: women, <laughs> Joe. I
1: could imagine um, a, a cart one day. You finding one and putting it in the wrong way around and then the game appearing upside down. Like, what have I done?
2: <laughs> I, you know what? I, I, I I'm not familiar with this game, and you know, I opened the article and before you guys started talking about it, then I was like, it's upside down in the picture straight away.
0: <laughs> Even all these years later, people are still falling for it, like you, Joe. Thirty-seven yeah. years later. 37 years. So uh, yeah, it, it is cool when we you know hear about new things that are found in classic games like that very cool now what about this um I was reading this article here all about an incredibly rare Nintendo card that returns from dead and is up for sale and this was for the Nintendo e-reader now obviously today, if you're talking about e-readers, we generally think of, you know, Kindles, stuff mm. like that. But back in 2002, uh, Nintendo, I don't think it actually came out over here, but it did in Japan and in North America. It was kind of a um, an add-on for the Game Boy Advance that would read cards and kind of unlock content in games and give you extra stuff. I, I
1: guess this is like the precursor to the Amiibo, because the Amiibo
2: is essentially mm. like an e-reader, but with a figure, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah you're pr- pretty much spot on there. You know, I'm I'm not massively familiar with the e-readers, but I'm pretty sure that's what it is, like like pre DLC kind of thing, yeah. but for Game Boy Advance games. It's like a credit card that you'd slide. Yeah, you'd, yeah, you yeah. slide it across. Yeah. yeah, you swipe it through. I think you plug it into the cartridge slot of the Game Boy Advance and you swipe it or something like that. Um But yeah, this this kind of dates all the way back to E3 2002, where Nintendo were promoting the e-reader um, and were handing out packs of cards like e-reader cards you know like to guests who walked in um and essentially there was prizes to be won in the cards um so the second prize there was 100 cards hidden within these packs of cards for second prize and then there was 10 first place ones um but to claim your prize you had to hand your card in which they'd then swipe on a game boy advance and it'd come up and it was a kirby card and it'd come up with kirby and say congratulations first prize see the demonstrator for assistance for your E3 special edition prize, and obviously they would then keep the card. So the idea is these ten cards would be handed back in, um, but one has emerged on eBay this week, uh, which is currently up for grabs for fourteen hundred dollars. It's gone for more than that now. Yeah. yeah oh, how much is it on now? Nine, nine, 10, now.
1: Yeah, Nearly ten thousand now. Nearly ten thousand nine hundred and ninety nine dollars.
2: <laughs> so it kind of comes back to what we've discussed over the last couple of weeks and we'll discuss it on the Patreon hangout and stuff like that it's it's like people are paying all this money for not even for games for, for cardboard yeah. essentially <laughs> so, so you know this, this isn't even a game it's literally just you swipe the card and it just says congratulations you won and it's completely ga- worthless now complete, you can't do anything with can't it can't do anything with it and you know the guy hasn't even had it authenticated who's selling it on eBay he's put it in like a little plastic clear case himself uh, apparently, it's not you know been sent off to any of these authentication companies or anything like that. But he has uploaded a video to the eBay listing of him swiping it, you know, proving it uh, on his own Game Boy Advance with an e-reader and stuff like that to show that it is legit. Uh, so I,
0: I guess it's not like a swipe once and it doesn't work again, kind of. thing. No, it it's not like that, that. No, it's
2: just I'm yeah. assuming he probably went to e three two thousand and two and just kept the card and never yeah, had yeah, it, it, it just in, but in his coat price. pocket. That, yeah. That
1: is, that is smart if he did it deliberately or he yeah. might have just been looking in the drawer and gone, oh, this might be worth something and then checked it and gone, oh my And chucked it on eBay. <laughs>
0: yeah. yeah, but he's... You know, you, know, you know, some people in here are saying that the first prize was apparently um, golden Game Boy Advances, which might be worth even more than this now. If oh, claiming. really?
2: Oh, wow. Well, there you go. Well, apparently there's also one of the un- unopened packs of cards on eBay as well. So I don't know if it's Ooh. the same seller, but they're selling the actual pack of cards sealed as well, which according to this article... Which obviously said that the, the individual card was at 1400, it's now at 10,000. That was apparently at 4,400 at that point. Um, so that could right. be on more as well. But it, it, like I say, it, can, it seems to be coming off the back of like, you know, Zelda NES selling for almost a million dollars and stuff like that. It's people buying cardboard. You know, I get it. I get, you know, the rarity and the collectability of it and stuff. But it's just crazy when you really think about
0: it. It's especially, it's anything Nintendo, really, isn't it?
2: Yeah, it seems that way. Like, Pokemon cards as well are so hot Mm. at the moment, like, worth hundreds of thousands and tens of thousands of pounds and stuff. And it's
0: Nintendo again, isn't it? I think if you've learned any lesson... From listening to our podcast over the last few years it's never throw anything away <laughs> just keep all your junk Keep all those Especially Nintendo
1: that were playing pokemon cards and now rich lords oh don't no, because
2: of, you, you you know full well 99.9999% of all of us who had our pokemon cards just ripped gave them, them and creased away, them yeah. and gave them yeah. away and chucked yep. them in the bin and stuff like that <laughs> it's horrible to think that you know between the three of us we probably owned most of these things that we talk about at some point or yeah. another. <laughs> <laughs>
0: we weren't those smart
2: kids at school who no.
0: kept them, though, were no, we? definitely not.
2: Far from it.
1: Yeah. <laughs> only my only <tazos. laughs> my
0: So this is really cool. I mean, we love um, talking about arcade units. And this is another one from Arcade 1-Up that's now available for pre-order. And this is the X-Men Arcade.
2: Yeah, we've been talking about Arcade 1-Up quite a lot recently and you know ravi pointed mm. it out the other week to us not on the show but he pointed out to us he was just like god at the moment there's just so many like classic arcade machines being re-released and you know and it, it, it is feeling that way a little bit at the moment every single week but they are cool um but yeah this is the x-men game which you know was really really popular in the 90s the big massive four player cabinet i don't know if you guys ever played it yeah not not a lot but i've played it before i'm yeah. familiar with it i played it in Skegness quite a bit when i was a kid Um, and you can still get it on, like, Xbox Live and stuff, Um, and it is a good, you know, little beat-em-up, you know, it's a side-along beat-em-up, and it's based, interestingly, it's not based on the X-Men cartoon that came out in the 90s, Um, it's based on the pilot episode of the X-Men show, which was meant to come out in the 80s, but never got picked up. So the game kind of came out based on that TV show that never got picked up, which is an interesting story in itself, but this is coming um, in mid-October, so it's up for pre-order right now, and it just says delivery mid October, but it's once again very similar to the Simpsons one that we reviewed the other week that we spoke about the other week. Sorry, um, you know it's got the four player uh, board on there, which is really really cool. So you know you got your, you know your four sticks and everything like that. Comes- it
0: makes sense that doesn't it? Because already making the Simpsons one, I guess it can just kind of redesign it. Yeah, then, they can just yeah. kind of
2: reskin it, can't they? And just put a different yeah. emulator in there and stuff like that. Um, doesn't just come with X Men. Um, it does come with the Avengers arcade game um, and then also the Avengers Galactic Storm which I'd never heard of which is an no. arcade one on one fighter which looks terrible um <laughs> right <laughs> <laughs> it looks i thought you were going to say it looks so good it, i can't wait to get it <laughs> it it, look, it looks like rise of the robots just give it a little youtube give it a little google it looks an awful awful one on one beat em up um so yeah pretty pretty cool that the x-men get x-men games getting some love from arcade one up and i can see this one selling well you know they've done a few odd ones and you could argue this is a bit of an odd one we're not as nostalgic for x-men as we were the simpsons one we all got really excited about that but i still think this is pretty cool you know if i saw this in the shop i would still be there like you know on my knees you know begging my wife can i buy it please
1: (laughs) i I think um it's it's interesting to see them go for like superheroes and stuff because that's got a cross compatible yeah. one like um i think batman would be a good one to do i'm just looking yeah at yeah the i don't, there's a, I don't there's think a pandora that... based kind of batman one yeah out there at the moment maybe they can start going through all the superheroes
2: i don't think there was off the top of my head i can't think of any batman classic batman arcade games i know there's like a racing one from a few years ago but other than actual home console games i can't think of have they done Terminator 2 yet? That that would be good. They haven't. They haven't done... I don't think they've done any light gun ones yet, and I really want them to do some light gun ones. The Terminator 2 Judgment Day one would be really good. I, I heard they did one with Cinder light guns. Oh, did they? Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've not, so, I've not so seen that, but no. They are they're not working on, on the technology. Jerry, so I, 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 your I dreams <laughs> might, uh, <make laughs> My dreams may come true. But what's interesting about this one, um, and this could be in some of the other arcade one-ups, but I've not seen this mentioned before, it does have online play. It is... It has got Wi-Fi, so you can do yeah, online can. play on this one, which I've never seen as a feature. Whenever I've read the articles about the other ones, so I'm not too sure about that. But a this big, one has Big has Book got Hunter. Wifi. That was oh, was it Big Book did. Hunter? Was it? Yeah, oh, okay. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, hopefully, they will do t- Terminator 2 Arcade or Time Crisis or something like
0: that. You know what though? Because uh, you always talk about wanting to play light gun games, and finally, you've caved. He's picking up a CRT tomorrow. Aren't I am picking. I'm picking up two.
2: <laughs> right, I'm picking up two tomorrow. Not at the um, same time. You'll break your back, mate. <laughs> <laughs> I've, I, it's a friend of mine, one of my best friends, and he he just messaged me the other day and was just like, "I've I've you know, there's a story behind it, which I won't go into, but he's um, acquired two CRT TVs." Do I want them? The condition is if I want them, I take both of them because he can't be asked to get rid of them. Right. So I was just like, yeah. So he's not sent me a picture of them. I don't know what brand they are or anything like that, or even how big they are. So there is that wow. concern that there could be <laughs> there could Find be room like... for it. I know I know yeah. Joe's
1: gaming room is quite small as well. So uh It's yeah, not that small. <laughs> no, no, but with all all the nerd equipment yeah. for the radio show
2: and stuff. Yeah, that's <laughs> you're
1: gonna have to.
2: Yeah, that is very true. But yeah, uh, <laughs> I'll put up a picture of the, uh, the big silver, like early 2000s, like
0: 50-inch ones or something. <laughs> Playing hearts of the dead, yeah. Yeah. I'm imagining your wife's face when you walk through the door with that
2: tomorrow. <laughs> when I don't work for the walk, through, when I walk through the door and say to her, "Can you come to the car and help me lift these?" Out?
0: We're going to have to take the side of the house off to get it in. Oh, God. I,
2: I I think there will be little 14 inch ones. I'm sure he wouldn't do me in like that. <laughs> they're,
1: they're good ones as well. The small ones.
0: Yeah, exactly. yeah, they are. They're the ones I've got as well. They just you know because I mean when I was a kid I used to play on portable TVs anyway, so they kind of look right on you know the 14 inch displays. Um, but yeah, do keep us posted, Joe, and hope your back's all right for next week's show. <laughs> now, I think, we, you know, this time of year, we've all had our birthdays this year, haven't we? So um, this might not be um, very useful, but if you wanted to make anyone a birthday banner, do you remember doing these on Dot .matrix printers back in the day? Printing out uh, these big banners that you put right across the room, you know, happy birthday, any occasion, really. Actually, Ravid has sent me a, a Valentine's card <laughs> using uh, this application. Um, this is one of the most popular desktop publishing apps of the '80s, the Print Shop that you might have used on the Commodore 64 or the Apple II, uh, by Broderbund. Actually, you can now use this in your web browser. Yeah, this is this is really cool actually
1: because, uh, like you know, n- lots of people had uh, office suites and stuff like that, but you know, they were a nightmare to do design on. And back then, it was really really bad to do design on stuff. Do you remember using word processors and using the different colours? the highlight stuff so bold would be like one colour Italics will be another, oh, God. And you'd have to, like, visualise it all in your head and then print it off and be like, no, that's wrong. <laughs> Before WYSIWYG. Before WYSIWYG. Yeah, well, this print shop is, uh, is quite WYSIWYG, and it's actually built... It, oh, God, I've just started it up, and it's made a massive noise. Um, it is built into the browser. <laughs> your dot matrix printer's just sprung to life. Yeah, <laughs> and, and, and the best thing about it is you can actually... When you press print on this, um, it does a pdf so you can get the pdf that you've created of this uh print shop in in the uh, in the browser and you can actually get a pdf output and then print it on your modern printer or or if you want to go old school like Dan dot Matrix, but i know dan would probably use the original
0: setup and 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 go <laughs> proper old school on it you know what i love about it though the actual pdf it gives you looks like a dot matrix doesn't it it's that like, you know you print it out and it will look like it's come off a dot matrix printer oh yeah totally like the graphics are still the old school ones and
1: like you've got greetings cards uh you can do signs we could do a retro hour letterhead um <laughs> banners as well Those banners where you do lots of different pages and uh, Did you
0: guys ever make like christmas cards and stuff on your computers or do your kids no i
2: always just made them like you know out of paper and <laughs> crayons crayons yeah this is when i was like 15 as well <laughs>
1: I, I did magazines so like we had loads of scanners and i'd like do magazine covers and i'd like scan my face and then um, to like you know uh, use printers and stuff and photocopiers and, and make a kind of magazine cover
0: of my face plastic like stuck up against some glass, <laughs> Ravi <Nice>. magazine. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that you see you can sell it on eBay. It's a really rare magazine. There, yeah. get any copies of that? <laughs> One you issue. Know, figure, yeah, <laughs> but I do remember. Yeah, when we used to use um, BBC Micros, and we had, um, do you remember Star LC ten printers? They were like nine pin dot matrix printers. I think came out in about eighty nine ninety. Um, but we used them at school, and <laughs> so I remember like we had some sweeter software in the way we could make Christmas cards, and then. For every birthday and you know, Mother's Day, you know my mum's birthday, Christmas, I'd make them for all the family oh, on mate. these dot matrix you, printers in school. Pro.
1: Do you remember the carbon copy paper as well that would? Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Go in there and then you'd also do drawings on the
0: carbon copy because it'd be like you can get a copy of your drawing. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just that, remember man. that giving. I always remember giving one to my grandma at Christmas and they're just looking at it like, "What the hell is this?" You know, I remember the look on her face. It's the future, day. gran. Isn't it cool? Yeah. Great. So um, if you're doing to relive those days, you can do it all over again in your web browser. Now, we did have our patrons hang out on Sunday night, another Absolutely amazing one. And um, like we said, you know, there's <laughs> a bit of a heat wave in lots of the world right now. So we're all a little bit sweaty doing it, but it was it was well worth it. You know, actually, it was just nice to get in out the sunshine on Sunday night, geek out about retro games, a few new faces who joined us for the first yeah, time as well. That was I, I love see.
1: seeing the new collections. Like that's one of the yeah. highlights to me is actually seeing people's collections. And we saw two absolutely amazing collections. And you know, mm-hmm. people just going through
0: all their machines and set up and everybody's sitting there drooling, you know. <laughs> We always do that, don't we? If someone new comes on, we're like, all right, okay, your initiation is show us your retro gaming setup. You I, I, I did
2: actually point out on it that uh, we always
0: say on the show,
2: you know, if you just want to come and watch, you don't have to talk and get involved. You can just come and watch. As soon as people join, we're like, you're on mute. You're on mute. <laughs> right. Let's Try see your, you keep your camera then. off,
0: there was a few people who just came in and watched and keep your camera off. Yeah, and that's fine. Yeah, you know, yeah, but it's, child, it's don't fine. Mind. It's
2: fine. But, but <laughs> you, we do usually do that when somebody's when we can see somebody's talking.
0: And they, yeah, trying
2: to talk. Yeah,
1: because <laughs> yeah. it mutes them automatically, and that's I'm, I'm sure that's like a new thing since COVID. It's the new etiquette, you know, people doing yeah. zooms. You're on mute. You're on mute. Yeah. that should be a
0: universal <laughs> sign for you're on mute. <laughs> Yeah, we did talk about all kinds of... What we're chatting about this week then, there was a a lot of new topics. To be fair, we we mainly went
2: through the game collections because they were amazing and they were huge. Um, And then what else were we talking about? Talking Um, about
1: movies, of course. Yeah, talking about movies. movies. uh, Video game documentaries as well we were talking about.
2: Yeah, yeah.
0: Really good stuff. So we do these um, once a month, and it would be amazing to see you there as well. Not only did we do a Patrons Hangout this weekend, we released the latest episode of our Patrons exclusive podcast, the Retro Hour After Hours, that this time was all about the Super Nintendo. Amazingly, I had some stuff to chat about,
1: which I thought I wouldn't <laughs> with the snaz. Uh, yeah. Really good episode, that was.
2: Yeah, no, I, I, was, I was quite impressed with Ravi, actually, considering, you know, the kind of run up to it, the prep for it, what little prep we do for the after hours. <laughs> Ravi was really
0: hours, hours
2: worth. Yeah. Hours, <laughs> days and days worth. But yeah, Ravi, you, you were quite nervous, weren't you about. Yeah. Yeah. Cause it's a machine that I, but, that I never owned. But you say. Yeah. it was really cool to find out, like talk about all our memories of the machine and also learn that none of us, even though we all kind of ha- hold the SNES in quite high regard for me, it's even my favorite console of all time or second favorite. It's still, you know, the jury's out on that one um none of us actually owned one until we were adults <laughs> yeah well ravi still doesn't own one <laughs> i am he will sing i've
0: got i've got i've got a spare one he can have yeah yeah, oh, <laughs> Which, uh, looking forward to yeah. It. um but yeah it is because i think this is a first kind of system episode that we've done where none of us actually owned it as kids
2: yeah we were all familiar with yeah. it we all played it we all mm. Borrowed them, rented them and stuff like that. But yeah, we we did our top five games on them, but that ended up actually only being about the last 15 minutes of the hour and a half episode, because we were just talking about memories in the machine, weren't we? Yeah. God, we could have gone on for hours. It was
0: so much fun. And I always dig out the news clips and, you know, we look at articles from the time. (laughs) And the the accessories
1: as well. yeah, Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. So we, we've done a few of these now. We did the, uh, the Mega Drive one. We've done already as well. We've done... Um, which other consoles have we done already? I think that's it. The second one? Just yeah, okay, well, there's lots more to do. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot <laughs> more to do. Next. PlayStation next. PlayStation yeah, next. Oh, i got to be, yeah. Play, there you go. That, that's decided. And also we do the retro years as well where we, um, we focus an hour and a half, two hours, all about a particular year in gaming and technology and uh, dig out all the big games of that year and chat about them as well. Uh, we're going to do 2002 as our next episode as we work up the retro years. So if you want to check out Our patrons' exclusive podcast is one of the perks of being a supporter of this show. You also get the regular podcast early most weeks. You get it ad free as well. But really, you're doing this just to support the Retro Hour and uh, to make sure that we can keep bringing out new episodes every single Friday. And for doing so, for backing us on Patreon, you will get a mention in the most prestigious high score table in the world of retro gaming, the Retro Hour Hall of Fame. Like this week, a big thank you to Jeff Owen from Beyond Farpoint Podcast, John Butler. Stephen Marshall. Analog darling. And M underscore duck. <laughs> See, I didn't know if that was a Nottingham thing. My duck. My duck, maybe. Yeah, maybe duck. it could be. <laughs> Which is a slang from people. <laughs> people live outside Nottingham. Like, what? People do actually call each other duck. Yeah, in yeah. We, we, duck. Yeah. And uh, in Yorkshire, it's flower and petal. <laughs> so, yeah, loads of, loads of weird slang in the UK. So uh, yeah, a big thank you for uh, everyone who's backed us on Patreon and uh, we'll see you at the next Hangout hopefully as well. Uh, right now, let's do our Retro Gaming Shop of the Week before we get into our interview with um, Richard Spitalny. This is something we do each week. We want to give some love and uh, big up all of these independent retro gaming stores that exist all around the world. You know these places that you go maybe on a Saturday afternoon, they've got people that love gaming, they do good prices on retro games as well. We want to keep these shops alive. And every week we're giving big mentions to Retro gaming. Stores all around the world. It's actually really cool because I know over the last like what two months that we've been doing this, we'd regularly get people tweeting us saying, Oh, I didn't realize this shop was there. I've gone to visit it. Then, you know, tagging them on Twitter and everything as well. So it is cool that people are finding out about new shops near where they live through us doing this. Yeah,
1: totally. And, you know, you guys contact us and let us know about more stores because it's really important to have these stores going. You know, record shops are actually had a revival and come back, and we'd love retro gaming shops to start exploding again you know um people taking their kids there and stuff and the kids having the experience of being surrounded by games it's like kind of in home alone or something like that and uh this one uh this week is called insanity gaming arcade and also insanity retro gaming we got a message from nick leonard and he said hey retro friends i just wanted to share this little gem I haven't been to this arcade yet, only the shop time and time again, but it looks amazing. So this is in Nuffield Industrial Estate in Poole, which is in Dorset. And this place, it's it's an arcade, but also a retro store. And the retro store alone looks absolutely insane. I hope you guys are seeing the
2: images of this at the moment. This is actually the first one that I already actually follow on Facebook. Oh, nice. uh, so I was like, I recognize this. And then when you said the name of it, I was like, oh, yeah, I already follow that one because of when we started doing this, I started looking for shops that I could potentially drive to <laughs> at weekends <laughs> right. to, go, to go retro game hunting. That's uh, the
0: only reason we do this. It's just to find places for jokes. Yeah, phone, it's, just, it? it's
2: just for me to find places. Unfortunately, it's a little bit far away for me. Uh, but I'm, if, if I'm ever in the area, I'll definitely jump in because it does look amazing. And then I've got an auntie who lives in Bournemouth. You can go stay. I with I will her go stay with week. her. I'll go see. I, I'm, I'm Dan's mate. <laughs> just knocking on her door. <laughs> uh, but the arcade section looks awesome. Like you know, it looks like a big warehouse just full of arcades. She's got like Time Crisis free. They've got that big Star Wars one with the big screen. You know, like where the seat moves and everything like that. Battle Battle Pod. That's it. Yeah, yeah, uh, crazy they've got a Taxi of retro as, ones well. as well. Crazy Taxi. Yeah, just spotted that one. This doesn't look like it's just been thrown together. Like, this is a labour of love.
0: The design of it, too, it's got that kind of, It reminds me of arcades in the 90s. Mm-hmm. Very kind of industrial looking. With that low, dark ceiling. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. he's <laughs> nailed it there. Iron rafters everywhere mm-hmm. and, um, like, neon lighting and stuff. It looks very cool.
1: It's got that Laser Quest aesthetic, hasn't it? Um, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. absolutely. <laughs> and the shop looks amazing. Like, they've, they've got a really nice layout. They've got a lot of box stuff there. Um, all the systems are kind of laid out and... You know, I love the use of using, this is what I've always recommended, uh, nail polish display cases to display Game Gear games and uh, Game Boy games because they all just fit in there perfectly. And it, it just looks really good. Like I could spend an awful lot of money here. You know,
0: What a great idea as well, having an arcade and a retro gaming shop connected because you know whenever I go to like arcade club and that often you play the games and you think oh I wouldn't mind a copy of this you know from my Mega Drive or something. You're giving them ideas there Dan Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So uh, if you want to visit them um, Insanity Retro Gaming in pool and Insanity Gaming Arcade I'll link them up in our show notes. Right then let's get the story of legendary games like Spy versus Spy, Boulder Dash as well. First our software with our special guest next on the Retro Hour podcast Richard Spitalny You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast and it is time for our favourite part of the show when we welcome on our very special guest and we're so excited to welcome on our guest this week who's worked with some incredible franchises and companies over the years including of course the man behind Spy vs Spy that we need to talk about in great detail very soon but let's welcome on to the Retro Hour podcast the amazing Richard Spitoli Hello Richard Hey there, hi Dan, hi Ravi Great to have you joining us Now, before we get into, you know, your stories of these amazing games that you've worked on, I mean, you know, the way we like to work things is we like to go back to day one and kind of find out your, you know, geek credentials. Uh,
3: What
0: what was the first thing that kind of um, got you into video games? Where did it all start for you? Do you remember?
3: uh, Yes, I do. Um, And I came to video games through movies, uh, feature films. I was uh, working with uh, Billy Blake. Uh, who was the co-owner of Millimeter Magazine, which was a trade journal for uh, p- production and post-production, mostly post-production for television and film. And um, through uh, an agent at the William Morris Agency, actually, I was introduced to Robert Avrick, who was then their editor. But uh, Robert had written the screenplay for The Night the Lights Went Out in Georgia, mm. Uh uh, which was a, a big song here back then in the uh, 80, early 80s, late 79, early 80s. They had produced The Night, The Lights Went Out in Georgia for AFCO Embassy Pictures. And uh, we decided that uh, we would try to uh, produce some films ourselves. I was working with Robert on an original screenplay, uh, which was Blood Bride, which he wrote. And I was also working with, uh, Billy on uh, trying to option the rights to tie a yellow ribbon, uh, you know, around the old oak tree, and uh, also Rhinestone Cowboy. Right. And while we were working on that as uh, independent film producers on the East Coast, Billy invested in a computer store, retail store, and the person who was managing that store was Fernando Herrera. And Fernando's son Stevie had been born basically blind with uh, multiple cataracts. And after he had his first series of operations when he was around two, Fernando used his uh, uh, Atari 400 computer to kind try to simulate the eye chart where you have the letter E uh, in different orientations and uh, they have different lines and it's bigger and smaller. He replicated that on the computer, and he found that his son, uh, who wasn't even really speaking yet, but by moving his hand to show uh, his three fingers sticking out, if you can picture that with your thumb grasping your pinky, making the letter E, Mm -hmm. indeed, Stevie was seeing well, and and Fernando used the computer to... uh, display the alphabet and for each of the letters he would draw a little picture and he would show it in uppercase, or lowercase. And at about that time Atari was holding competition for amateurs and Fernando submitted what he was calling my first alphabet to Atari. And uh, there were different categories. there was entertainment, there was education, there was productivity. and he won the best educational program. And then he ended up winning the best overall of, of all the programs. And he was awarded the first star of merit. And that, well, actually, it was called the Star Award, and it was the first one ever given. And uh, there was a $25,000 prize, and uh, they started featuring Fernando in two page, full color magazine spreads. And Billy and I, said well wait a minute why don't we uh, try to build a company around fernando it's very difficult trying to produce features unless you're in hollywood and even then the odds are greatly against you and that's what we did we uh in uh, summer of uh, 1982 we formed first star software we named it after that star award
1: that, that's really interesting because you say that you were in the film industry as well. So um, yeah. you, you, you produced Rhinestone as well with uh, Dolly Parton yes. and Sylvester Stallone. Yeah. Do you have any good yeah. stories yeah. of those folks?
3: Oh, I sure do. But since this is sort of public, <laughs> <put it> mildly, <laughs> um, yes. So um, as I mentioned, uh, The Night the Lights Went Out in Georgia was done at AFCO Embassy Pictures. We had optioned the rights to Tie a Yellow Ribbon, and we had optioned the rights to the song Rhinestone Cowboy, and we were looking for writers to write the screenplay. And there was a writer, totally unknown at that point, Phil Alden Robinson, and he had a screenplay which had not been produced. It was a a police action detective kind of movie, and we read it, and we just thought this guy was amazing. Even though it was uh, dark and, you know, violent and action, there was humor in it, too. So we retained Phil to write the screenplay for Rhinestone. And um, we got Michael Keaton and Sissy Spacek. We had them all set to go. And Dolly Parton's agent, Sandy Gallin, got a hold of the screenplay. And he said he wanted Dolly to do it. So, whereas we had a $7 million budget uh, and a great screenplay uh, ready to go, we were going to try to do it at Afro Embassy, as I say, with Michael Keaton and Sissy Spacek. Suddenly, this turned into a huge production because they, Sandy wanted Gally, uh, Dolly to do it. And then the Hollywood thing starts to happen where you, you, you try to package the talent to give you the broadest commercial appeal so where uh, th- there was a concern that dolly wasn't a big enough draw um in the large cities and internationally somehow they had the great idea well why don't we get sylvester stallone he would round out that appeal well the problem with that is it, it, the story was about a country western singer sly can't sing <laughs> and <laughs> Can hardly act, you know, really, uh, in my opinion. Uh, he was an action I, I, guy, I, I, wasn't he? Yeah, he's an yeah. action guy. Not, not a, not a, I, I didn't mean it quite the way that sounded. So it, it was greenlit. It started to go forward and actually, uh, although I'm a little ahead of myself, but it all ties together. I couldn't be on set and in line produce it, uh, so to speak, because in 1983, which we haven't gotten to yet we sold half the company to warner mm. and i was put under an exclusive contract so i i couldn't leave but um yeah that's that's a little bit of the movie background well well With it's kind of interesting
1: coming from like movie production then going into video games and uh seeing that link that early you you, you mentioned the atari program exchange as well and there was a yeah. lot of innovative kind of companies on there. did winning it really help cement the reputation and, uh, kind of help first star have that huge leap at the beginning.
3: Yes. No question about it. Uh, on, uh, uh, Fernando, who, as I mentioned, had been managing the computer store and had written the program, my first alphabet for Stevie, he had been making games on his own. Uh, before that, and he was very tight with the, uh, engineers at Atari. Back then, you, you know, I don't know how he had the number, but you could call up Atari directly and, and speak to the engineers. And he had a very, very, very early serial number, I remember on his computer. I don't remember exactly what it was, but it was, you know, somewhere around a hundred. So he was reverse engineering the hardware. Uh, He actually showed Atari how to make uh, 256 colors instead of the 128 colors they had been advertising. This game that he had done, Space Chase, which had quite a little following, we believe is the first uh, game ever to have wraparound where you would, if your character, your sprite moved off to the right side of the screen, it magically would appear on the left side of the screen. So he was, even though like Pac-Man and you know others obviously uh, were soon to do it. That was the first uh, program we believe that did that. So having the on his first game for the company, which was Astro Chase, we had right on the box you know, the Atari logo. You know, winner of the first Atari Store A Star uh, Award. Yeah, it it was um, having Fernando's name an image you know appearing in i think it was life magazine i i i i can picture the the uh, the full page color spreads i i'm not i can't swear that it was life but it was magazines of that stature so that that was very helpful
0: i mean personally were you um looking into programming and at least understanding kind of the concepts of games and the way they worked at that time
3: uh no <laughs> I never, never, I'm very poor at math, number one. I know my own limitations, but I, I have never thrown a, a line of code. Over the years, I have acquired a certain kind of understanding of how code works. But I actually think not being a programmer and not knowing what is considered doable or not doable. Has served me well in working with programmers and, and, you know, engineers creatively because I'll put out an idea without the programming knowledge filter stopping me from, how could I do that? You know, well, I'm not even going to mention it. It can't be done. Uh, So in in talking with Mike Riddell on Spy versus Spy, for example, that's why I said, well, you know, can't we just split the screen and have uh, both players be playing simultaneously? Uh, I, I was, that was very important to me because I, I always envisioned the, the spy versus spy comic being translated interactively in a way that would not be turn-based. Mm. Uh, and, and therefore, the question to Mike and him turning around saying, uh, I'll give it a try. So, uh, but no, n- never got into programming.
1: So it kind of didn't l- limit your mind, really. You, you, you would approach stuff without that kind it, it, of programming. Exactly, uh, yeah. exactly.
3: Uh, I think in, that would have been an example of where uh, you know, a little knowledge is dangerous. Um, I had no knowledge. And I think that they're also in, in, in working with programmers, they kind of liked the idea that we could have that kind of an exchange and then, if they could do it, it was like magic to me. And I would become very, you know, effusive and, and, um, and, and, you know, really very complimentary and get very excited. And uh, that kind of fuels the, the, the creative process. I, I mean, Fernando constantly amazed me, and Mike Rydell certainly constantly amazed me. And, um, Whether it was rightfully amazement or not, I don't know. (laughs) But I think what they did was kind of magical.
0: So how did the Parker Brothers and Radio Shack partnership come about, and how much did that help the company grow?
3: Oh, wow. It it, it helped us uh, tremendously. We started the company um, with $50,000. We basically said to Fernando, what do you want to do? Um, He was working from his home. We were buying the equipment. And um, he would uh, give us updates, you know, uh, every now and then. But it was his game, his concept. We just said, "You do what you want. Our job is, you know, to produce it and then figure out how to uh, distribute it and to publish it." Let me just say, but before the Parker Brothers deal, there was almost another deal. We started in the summer of 1982. Astro Chase shipped December 7th of 1982. Somewhere in between that, probably uh, late November, we had a meeting with Stephen Greenberg, who was the largest shareholder of Commodore Computers at the time, a very eccentric person, kind of looked like Benjamin Franklin with this long, flowing gray hair. He had a company on the top of Rockefeller Plaza, uh, 30 Rock, a company called Animetrics. And uh, Billy had an uncle who was a press agent and, um, for uh, Broadway. And Stephen had invested in, in a play recently, and uh, we had an introduction, and um, he knew we had this game that uh, had not yet been completed and wasn't yet out in the market, and it was for uh, the market that, that he was interested in. There wasn't a, a C64 version. Maybe he'd be interested because Fernando was working on the Atari. And we come up into, I've never seen offices this big. It was the entire floor. And as we're walking to his office, he is showing us, you know, as we go, go down this hallway, room after room after room with programmers, all, you know, in each in their own office with Commodore stations all set up. And, uh, we had, uh, brought our Atari, uh, of he they didn't have any there. Uh, we brought the hardware, set it up, showed him the game. And he was very, very interested. Um, and then we went into his office, huge floor to ceiling windows, all blocked off. He he kept his drapes closed. His office was up like on a mini stage uh it was about ten feet off the ground where his desk was and all these monitors, you know, stock exchange monitors all around him. And Billy and I are in chairs on the regular floor. So you know, we're looking up at him and uh he says, I like it. I, I, I think there's some potential and um um I'll give you twenty five thousand dollars, you know, and we'll figure out a royalty and oh wow, I mean We had just put in 50,000 and we already had an offer for 25,000 and we were very interested. Uh, but we said, well, thank you. Uh, we have a partner who, you know, Fernando, who actually did the programming and all the graphics and all the sound, all the music. And, uh, we have to run it by him. He said, no, 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 you, you take my offer today or it's nothing. In fact, if you call me tomorrow, I won't even take your call. And it was very chilling and, you know, but there was just no way we were going to do that without discussing it with Fernando. And so we respectfully declined. And as we were walking Atari 800 in hand and almost getting on the elevators, he says, okay. $250,000, Two hundred and fifty thousand dollars, but not a penny more, and you have to let me know now. No way. <laughs> <laughs> so, so oh, okay. Now that uh, we know Fernando is going to be okay with, so so we said that's yes, that that sounds good. And, and then he, okay, but I want to make the same deal: first right of refusal on your next four titles. We again we said okay, subject to you know uh, working this all out that. That sounds like something we could live with. And we're going to go back and we'll tell Fernando and we'll follow up. Anyhow, to make a long story short, uh, we never were able to come to terms. We went to contract. We did a a lot of work back and forth on it, but it it wasn't happening. And we released the game, as I say, uh, in December 7th. And mostly I was still working on... The film projects with Billy. Fernando was at home working on Astro Chase. In the building where we had our offices, there was someone who was in, uh, the electronics business. I don't even know what it was. It was small little widgets, little connectors, switches. And he said, well, well, you know, I'm going to the consumer electronics show. Uh, I have a 10 foot table. I'm not in the hall. I'm outside the hall. Uh, but you know, I'll be happy to let you use half the table. So I said, let's do it. And uh, through uh, the Consumer Electronics Show itself, uh, rented a large, uh, I guess they call it rear screen projection TV. Mm. We had shipped the title, so we had packaging. I had written the documentation. My father was in the printing business. They printed it up. I, I had taken screenshots of Astro Chase, the, the original animation, the, uh, you know, the beautiful earth in the center with all of the planets around it. And I had these eight by 10 color pictures in a, like a portfolio and, uh, went out. I had no appointments. Uh, we did print up cards and, um, people who were taking the escalators up and down to different floors of the convention center were like breaking their neck. You could see them going up the <laughs> escalator <laughs> and then turning it like, and then, you know, they would disappear as they glided up to, but the whole way up they were all looking at what were they seeing. So my, my problem, the challenge was how do I get the people who I need to see this? Because the only way I could really show it, I thought it was, I certainly wasn't going to go in and commandeer someone's computer on the, on the show floor. So I went to all of the big, you know, publishers. You, you, you get a, a brochure at each show you, you see the floor plan and you can see who's there. And I tracked down the big companies. And, um, while the person who was, uh, you know, very high up at Parker Brothers was standing, having a meeting, uh, on the floor, not in one of the meeting rooms was talking. I kind of nudged my way. In, got into his view and I opened up this portfolio with these screenshots and in the middle of mid sentence to whoever he was talking to, he said, excuse me. And he said, what's that? And I said, well, that's our new game. He said, what's it on? I said, it's, it's on the Atari. He said, that looks fantastic. I said, if you'd like to, we can make an appointment. Come by, I'll show it to you. You can play it. We are right. And I gave him the location and he, he had somebody at the, at the front desk, the, you know, tell him his schedule and he said let's you know I'll come by at whatever and he did along with others too by the way I did the same thing with with several uh, publishers but um they really they were blown away and so that was January and we uh, ended up signing with them uh very early in April for a quarter of a million dollars well and, it, it was an
1: absolute <laughs> absolutely kind of stunning game like um yeah. especially for the atari 800 you know um the quality oh, yeah. of it and the the scrolling and the intro and everything um did you think your kind of movie background help help you promote that and and yes. kind of yeah. aim for that look
3: yeah i do I, I mean i i don't mean to take much credit at all uh fernando was amazing but the um having that theatrical opening and spreading it out uh, so that as you advanced and got you know if you were able to work your way up into higher and higher levels that you would see more and more of the story that was the kind of thing where i think my film background and and creative conversations with fernando that was helpful and licensing also i I must say uh, uh, i had a lot of licensing Background, because that in in uh, the movie business, there's a lot of slicing and dicing between you know domestic box off and international rights and television and ancillary, and so that all came very naturally to me. And early on with uh, First Star Software, we ended up doing a great deal of licensing for, you know, systems that we didn't want to bother uh, or territories and languages and formats that we otherwise wouldn't have handled. And and that was a tremendous source of revenue for us. And also why I think we were uh, so attractive to Warner software, which purchased half the company in November of 1983 uh, because, you know, that's all bottom line, Dollars if, if you turn over source code, or you just turn over a ROM or what have you, and um, boom, you're getting advances against royalties, and you're getting ongoing royalties from MSX or you know NEC or you know whatever. It was great. So definitely, my my licensing background as uh, was very, uh, I think, served us well.
0: Well, of course, a massive hit for First Star Wars Boulder Dash, you know, one of the most infamous arcade mm-hmm. games of all time uh, and on every home platform yes. back in the 80s, I remember. <laughs> yes. What's kind of the background there then and how did you um, first get in touch with Peter Leaper? and when you saw that game, did you know that it was going to be a hit then? Did you have like an instinct about it?
3: So um, without sounding immodest, uh, I did. I, my mm. gut was that it was amazing. Uh, I mean, that's easy to say now, but that truly was my reaction Uh, when we were um, publishing early on with Astro Chase being the first title we packed in each box a solicitation it was a postcard you know do you have a game do you have a program we're always looking um, and we gave the phone number and uh, our address and you know please submit it so Peter submitted Boulder Dash to us before it was completed to us and to I think every other publisher out there, but he was up in Canada, the Eastern portion of Canada. And, um, we were in New York, so we were not that far away. And I have since learned from him that that was something that he liked. He, he was hopeful that he would be doing business with someone who was you know geographically closer. And, uh, I just happened to be the person to open up uh, the submission. I was the first to play it at the company and uh, i thought it was amazing and then i uh, showed it to billy and, and again the the company at that point what made us a software company was, was fernando working out of his house and in our offices our film offices um where it was me and billy and we had a publicist a full-time publicist uh, diana loomis and uh for the movies she quickly became our publicist, PR person uh, for First Star Software. We had an LE system. It it was a series of hard drives where we would um, basically put bad sectors as as we duplicated the disks because we were doing all of our own um, publishing early on. Uh, We were fulfilling the orders right from our offices. I thought it was amazing. I was a little put off by the, the fact that, uh, the, the color palette for every level, uh, was the same, but we all were enjoying it right away. And then coincidentally, we had an appointment with, um, Arnie Katz and, uh, Bill Kunkel, who were coming by on, uh, something related to, um, Astro Chase. I said, Hey guys, what do, what do you think of this? They said it's, it's so playable. It's, I mean, it's amazing. It's great. So that, you know, it is unanimous. And we uh, ended up acquiring the intellectual property uh, from Peter um, as a result of, you know, all of us thinking it was going to be amazing.
0: But it was one of the games that, you know, even my mother would sit down and play it with me. You know, she'd find it addictive, even though she's not a gamer in the slightest. Uh, uh, it absolutely. had that appeal, I think. Yeah, yes. that oh, crossover no.
3: appeal. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, it sounds like hyperbole, but in every promotion we ever did, in every interview, in every magazine article, whatever it is, throughout its legacy, that is one of the qualities of the game that most people notice right away. It it it, it appeals to hardcore, casual, first time players. Boys, girls, men, women—I mean, it—it it really does have a universal appeal. Uh, and again, it, it's a uh, cliche nowadays, but uh, it, it was something that we were always looking for. It's very easy to learn, but very difficult to master.
1: Our UK friends were really happy with um, the spectrum
3: uh, yeah. getting a
1: version of it. Um, how did you guys kind of? Do that deal. And did you get Center Spectrum then or were they around?
3: Um, Spectrum was probably, so we were working with Barry Friedman and Jan Putnam uh, and Tracy Coates. In fact, uh, ICG, uh, International Computer Group, who are our agents, not on an exclusive basis. I was the only client I believe that they ever had who retained the right to do their own licensing, but I have that licensing background. But with Barry and Jan, um, and again, they had already made minor 2049er a huge hit. I mean, the game itself was obviously incredible, but they, they had proven their ability to get the game on every platform out there. And so Spectrum, I'm positive, I'm sure, must have come through a deal that Barry worked out for us in Europe. Did you
0: have to approve all the ports?
3: Yes. Oh, yeah. No, no. I, uh, all, all of the, I, I approved all of the ports up until very recently. That was true. Every Boulder Dash game up until the one that has just come out, Boulder Dash Deluxe, only was released after intensive game testing uh, by me and uh, my approval for for good or or ill i mean there you know there are some versions more recent over the years where some of our uh, most adamant fans uh feel that we uh, strayed from the holy grail i i tried not to i pretty much stand by all of the versions
0: well another big big license that you had was um superman um getting the the game license out of that that must have been absolutely huge
3: um, it wasn't as difficult as it would otherwise have been since at the time we did that and Spy versus Spy and Wonder Woman, we were a sister company. So we did that after Warner Software, which was a division of Warner Publishing, a Warner Communications company, which is how they always describe themselves, um, once they were equity partners. Uh, the first thing, uh, we did is we took a weekend at one of their executive suites or apartments, as they call them. Uh, Warner has, uh, some apartments that they maintain or they did back then in Manhattan for executives who are coming in from the West Coast or internationally or what have you. And so, um, Albert Latuca. Who used to be the head of Macmillan and had become the uh, the president of Warner Software, who was the person I had negotiated our deal with and was working with, he said, "Look, let's let's spend a weekend, and let's uh, try to come up with uh, the uh, what it is that makes First Star First Star. What what's special and unique about you and your approach, and let's see if where we have synergies." And um, it was. During those sessions where I identified uh, Spy vs. Spy and Superman and Wonder Woman as the properties under their, the Warner umbrella that I thought would make great games, interactive uh, experiences. And as a sister company, we negotiated all of these deals at arm's length, but under very favorable terms. So, yeah, I I don't think um, a relatively young, very young, unproven company would have had a shot if it hadn't been for the fact that we were, you know, a sister company.
1: And like spies were really popular back then, like especially kind of fun comedy spies like uh, Clouseau and, you know, the kind of comic uh, Dick Tracy and stuff like that. Yes. yes. Yeah. Do do you think that really hit with the public when it came out?
3: I think that... That probably contributed to it. The, the fact that uh, we, we were um, in a sweet spot, kind of, uh, again, culturally, where those sorts of characters uh, did have a very broad appeal. Um, and there were, uh, you know, TV shows and, 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 and all of movies and what have you. But um, the spy versus spy characters, I think, were are, are kind of unique were then and, and to this day, but it helped for sure.
0: It always reminded me a bit, because I remember, you know, I loved Inspector Gadget on TV around that time, right. you know, very kind of tongue-in-cheek and humorous, not serious.
3: Yes. No, no, the, the humor is a big part of it. The gadgetry, mm. the the traps, uh, all of that uh, was, was very helpful. It, it, we didn't have to um, invent the genre, so to speak. It, it was across, you know, uh, many entertainment channels you know as i say whether it be the movies or the tv show get smart or you know uh, all of that but the the characters themselves were this interesting combination of um slapstick and strategy and uh, the surprise ending and um that was the appeal to me
0: how did the character design develop then
3: for the game with Mike, um, I was, as I had mentioned earlier, I was dead set on not being turn-based. It, it was very important to me that we retain the surprise ending that you have in the comic strips. And if you are alternating turns, there's too much time to think and to watch and to see. I I think it would have slowed things up and totally eliminated the ability to have that surprise ending. So by having what I ended up uh, calling simul vision, the split screen, and simul play, the ability to both players to be active at the same time, along with the trapulator, uh, which were all trademarks I created, we had something where Action continually flowed and you could change the game literally in the last second because your opponent could have everything needed in the briefcase be on their way to the exit and you could ambush them, win, you know, in in, uh, hand-to-hand combat, so to speak, uh, and then reclaim the briefcase and win. So that was my, you know, uh, answer or solution to retaining the surprise ending.
0: Was there ever any concern that it, so obviously it was quite a complex title compared to a lot of, you know, games on 8-bit machines back then. Did you ever think that would put yes. users off? Was there ever a concern that it was a bit too complex for gamers?
3: Yes, um, there was. Uh, we addressed it uh, in two ways. The map, so the ability at any time to see where you and the opponent was, was, we hoped would be part of the solution. And also, um, I asked Mike to add what I refer to as breadcrumbs, like in Hansel and Gretel, where they, you know, would drop pieces of bread so that they could find their way home. Hopefully you know that fairy tale. I don't know if it's, yeah, yeah. Uni- okay. So, uh, we had, um, I asked Mike to Display at the the bottom of each player's screen, their half of the screen, uh, little arrows up, down, left, right, and if you followed them in reverse order, if you started with the, the you know the most recent icon, which would be furthest to the right, if you did whatever it said. So if it you know pointed right, if you left the room you were in and went to the right you were back in the room you were right before and then if you did down then you went to the door front at the front of the screen and you went into the room that were two moves back. So the combination of the map and the breadcrumbs was definitely those were implemented because we were concerned that this was unlike anything else it might be too difficult.
1: You were uh, interestingly also involved in some Star Trek titles (laughs) taking you back to your kind of Film days with the uh, FMV video stuff on the PC, Uh, Star Trek Borg. What was it like working on that kind of interactive movie?
3: Interesting. Um, So Imergy is a company that I worked at, started First Star in 1982, sold it to BBG Entertainment really in 2018. The only period in there where I was not exclusively working for First Star was a couple of years I think it was like 98, 99. I, I honestly forget um, where I was the executive vice president at a company called Emergy. And we did um, intranets and we did uh, a lot of CD-ROM educational titles. We also worked with Simon & Schuster uh, on the Star Trek properties. We also did the, an interactive, The Joy of Cooking, <laughs> which was a, a Simon <laughs> & Schuster property. Um, which is actually kind of cool. You could, um, you could tell the program what was in your refrigerator and our database would generate recipes with things that you already had in your pantry and refrigerator. This is way Sounds back. Sounds useful
1: nowadays. Yeah, it was,
3: it was, it was <laughs> really cool. But, um, so, uh, but I did work, um, overseeing the production of several Star Trek titles, um, where they use QuickTime VR uh, and the Omnipedia and um i was the one who actually uh, cut the i found the company dragon uh dragon speech i think it was and made that deal with them and we integrated uh speech recognition into those products and and uh, again that all this is well before alexa or anything like that and it was uh, really cool you could kind of mimic that interaction uh, that we saw all those years on the bridge and uh, you know uh, in tv Computer, you know, and then you would you would speak, but I I was producing the producers there as the executive vice president in charge of production. So it was actually Peter Mackey who was um, the the true genius and head uh, of, of production behind all of the Star Trek titles that we did.
1: Did you did you have some like fact checkers there because uh, you oh, know, Star uh, yeah. Trek fans? Uh, yeah.
3: Well, it, it, yes, but interestingly, Peter is a universal Star Trek fact-checker. He's one of those Trekkies who literally knows it all. But uh, Simon and & Schuster and the uh, the um, Okudas or Okada, the, the people who designed the interface, um, that beautiful kind of um, lavender, blue, purpley, um, you know, touchscreen interface, they uh, reviewed everything to the nth degree. So they had very stringent controls, quality controls and uh, fact-checking, which by the way was was very true at the EC Publications, Mad Magazine and DC Comics for Superman. Uh, So I was used to working with um, licensors who uh, were very protective of their IP.
1: Star Trek games I always feel have kind of struggled in comparison to like, star wars titles and that's mainly because of a uh, lucas games and you know mm-hmm. them lo- mm-hmm. having a lot of technology behind it um d- did you guys feel that when you were producing it and that there wasn't like a kind of central star trek company
3: uh, i mean it's it's interesting what the work that i was involved with for the star trek franchise was not uh gaming it was experiential it was replicating being at the bridge and um, not terribly uh, mission-based or, you know, interactive. uh, So there were almost, at least the titles that I was involved with, which was only a few, but I agree with you that, you know, Star Wars, that franchise in the gaming space has run, you know, ran rings around it.
1: It's interesting because the latest kind of Star Trek game, um, uh, bridge Crew is like mm-hmm. a complete VR experience where you are exactly sitting in the bridge and, and kind of doing that. So uh, interesting yeah. to see it kind of come, yes. come full circle.
3: When we did the, uh, the QuickTime VR uh, work, it was, I, I don't want to say categorically, the first commercial product with it, but it may have been or it was very, very, very early uh we were working very closely uh you know with apple and um uh it was so a lot elat- we we had to send you know uh, our crews out to the sets with special equipment specialized cameras and um it was arduous taking everything back and then stitching it all together but the experience um even back then was you know totally immersive and amazing
0: well, Richard, you now moving a bit more into kind of the last decade or, or so. I mean, Boulder Dash, a game that just won't go away. I mean, that game just keeps coming back and it's still a massive hit. And we've had stuff like obviously the thirtieth anniversary version, Boulder Dash Deluxe. Tell us about kind of bringing it back and kind of why you think the interest is continuously around that, that game then and um, kind of what changes have been made to bring it into the twenty first century.
3: Well, I I think one of the the things one of the reasons why it continued as long as it did was because I never gave up on it. <laughs> I mean, the honest truth is that in keeping First Star uh, around as long as I could, that was our strongest IP that we controlled. Um, Spy versus Spy, we do not own the intellectual property, obviously. So the name and the likeness of the characters we did not own. Um, we own the copyrights to the game designs and to our interface, SimulVision, SimulPlay, uh and what have you. But Boulder Dash was all ours. And um, it was a combination of being solicited, where we would be approached by companies that wanted to do like, I remember when we did the first mobile version, um, that came from, uh, Instantcom, a company over in Croatia. And they, uh, they approached us. They wanted to take the license, uh, to try to bring it out on, um, you know, the Nokia handsets. Hmm. And, uh, I said, I, I really don't want to do a license. I'll, I'll, you know, we'll do it together. We'll contribute the rights. Uh, we'll work on the design together. You'll do the programming and all the porting and all of that. And uh, I'll take care of getting it published. And we'll be 50-50 partners. Um, and that's what we did. And uh, we did that for uh, several iterations on mobile with Instant Calm, And then we did that on uh, PC for um, Treasure Pleasure and Pirate's Quest, where we were approached by a company. Uh, in Hungary and uh, same thing I said no I instead of doing a license why don't we do it this way and and that became a, a, a very successful model for us and
0: obviously spy versus spy I mean we've had I, I know you said you don't know the rights of that game but there was like Um, I remember the remake of the original game that was on um, the iPhone you know probably about seven eight years ago now yeah. I mean did you have obviously involvement with that being the original game then what was kind of the story around the getting that updated and
3: yes no no I was I was very involved with, hmm. with that, uh, to a, a great degree. We, uh, here's a case where we were approached by, uh, robots and pencils. And I explained to them, well, it will, you will have to make a deal with first star for the game designs and, and all of that. You'll have to make a separate deal with EC publications for the, the intellectual property. I, I, I can, uh, you know, middleman that. For you and, and mediate that, and make all the introductions and work with you. And I know what what they look for, and and we were able to all come to terms so that all the pieces of the puzzle were in place. And then I, I worked very closely with them because we realized that it, it was going to be very important to have included the original version, the retro version. And I was dead set on having that be, I mean, I want to say pixel for pixel. I, I don't know if that's the case, but we had to make some changes, obviously, because we were dealing with a touch interface. But but the uh, the, the the levels, the caves, the um, the look and the feel, um, I worked, to answer your question, yeah, a, a great deal of time on that. And I, I know they became frustrated <laughs> as time went by, this was all their investment, obviously, and you want to get to market as soon as you can so that you start generating revenue to start recouping your investment. But uh, I must say it, it was not a, a really – it wasn't a strong resistance. They kind of believed all along that in the long run, if, if we could make this a, a really true – as true to the original as possible, it would work commercially and, and we would have a stronger title and it was very very well received and it did exceptionally well and uh, I think we're all very glad that we put in the extra time to get it right.
0: And I think it is important as well when you've got a game that's that loved by its fan base as well and I mean you know it's people's memories as well yes. isn't it so you yeah. get it wrong and you can get can get right. really bad got it?
3: Well <laughs> by, yeah and by the way it would be disingenuous if I didn't say I was also heavily influenced by the some of the negative feedback mm. I had received to some of the Boulder Dash titles, where we you know introduced things like, you know bombs or the ability to kick things which were not in the original. Uh, again, as a designer, as a creator, as a producer, there are so many things, so many factors that you you need to take into consideration. But one of them is always your target audience and, and in a, if you're doing something in a series where you have a built in fan base, uh, that's a huge consideration. So I, I don't take it lightly. And, um, as I say, I, I know there were, there has there some of the more recent Boulder Dashes did receive, uh, you know, some complaints. Some people obviously love it. Uh, but for spy versus spy, especially the first one. After so long, I was keen on having it be uh, basically an identical port. Yeah,
0: and I think as well it must be quite rewarding, you know, having it out on these new generation platforms. As I always remember, you know, before before the pandemic when we used to do video game events, you know, we used to do talks and stuff there. Or It was always amazed me when you'd see, like, mums um, and dads coming in with their kids and like you know, showing them the arcade games that they used to play as kids, and the kids playing on them and getting into it. I mean, is it rewarding when like you know, new generation of players is uh, is getting into these games on new platforms for you?
3: Yes, yes, very much so. It's it's kind of like like the Beatles. It's like when you it's like when you play a Beatles song for your children or your grandchildren, and they love it. And it's yeah. Uh, so yeah, seeing a. a Another generation, because there have been several now, yeah. um, come along and, and really take to it is very rewarding. And, um, you know, I have two daughters um, and it was always important to me to have the games that I produced and published be nonviolent. And uh, that was partly how why we did the uh, Romper Room series, which was an educational TV show here. Uh, an alphabet and numbers, and, but um you know, all of the games that we did, whether it would be uh, Astro Chase or or Bristles, Flip and Flop, even Spy versus Spy, the violence is you know very um, humorous and comic book like. Yeah. And and that's the great thing about uh, Boulder Dash. Um, I'm happy. Uh, I, I was happy when my kids were. Eight years old, and they were playing it with their friends, and and then uh, in college, <laughs> when when uh, they were showed to some of their friends who hadn't seen it, and and yes, as time goes on, it's it, it's very rewarding.
0: It's a timeless design, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, obviously, I mean, you know, it's amazing. First Star is still going today. I mean, um, what what, what are you kind of up to in the company now? What what's kind of is there anything coming up that we should look out for? Sure.
3: Uh, well, I retired in two thousand and eighteen from. Uh, being active and we sold the um, copyrights Well, we, we sold the uh, intellectual property, entire intellectual property for Boulder dash and, and our other, most of our other titles to uh, BG uh, entertainment. I've been very much uh, involved with uh, Stefan Berenson, who is the, the owner of the company as he's been uh Behind the scenes, uh, getting the next iteration ready, which has uh, just come out uh, recently, uh, the Atari VCS version of Boulder Dash Deluxe. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, there have been some talks. I don't know where they are uh, about a, uh, a VR version. So um, that may or may not be happening. Uh, I haven't been involved. Uh, uh, I hope it does because I have played older dash vr in my head for decades (laughs) and they may not even the the design that they may go with may not be that design but i'm convinced there's a way to do it uh, where you get around the obvious problem of well how do you uh, how do you see far enough ahead that you can you know have it still be the strategy game where you are planning you, you know what you're going to, where you're going to go, and what you're going to do, well enough in advance that it it retains that strategy element.
0: I'm just picturing looking up and seeing a boulder falling down towards you in VR. That'd be quite the experience.
3: <laughs> yeah, <it> definitely would. <laughs> or, or or seeing you know the the equivalent of a firefly or a butterfly you know chasing it, yeah. coming at you. <laughs> um, I think when the technology gets to where it needs to, and with the proper design. It will it will be fabulous and and again I don't know if there is anything in the works but I would love to see uh, uh, esports you know a competitive versions there are network versions and, and I think that the, I, I think watching Boulder Dash uh, is actually very exciting watching people play.
0: Absolutely. Well, long may it continue, Richard. Thank um, you. Like I said, t- timeless design. Um, and thank you so much for coming on and being our guest and sharing some of your stories. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you.
3: A pleasure and an honor for me. Thank you so much. And good luck with the series, guys. I mean, I, you're, I don't know, what are you, 280? What episode are you up yeah. to? Yeah.
0: Yeah, well, we're ne- ne- not far off 300 now. I think wow. about 285 this will be, yeah. 85. So.
3: Fantastic. Yeah. Well, continued success, and, and thank you for this opportunity to uh, walk down memory lane.